Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Risk! Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes where we look back at Risk content from our earlier years. Now, for a long time now, the first two years' worth of Risk episodes, the ones from October of 2009 through October of 2011, have been behind a paywall. But that's been a little confusing for a lot of Risk fans who are always telling us they didn't even know those first two years worth of episodes existed. So we thought it would be fun if every other Thursday now we re-ran an entire episode from the very earliest days. Now, as we review these throwbacks, remember many of these recordings were made over a decade ago. I just ask that you keep that historical context in mind. Today in 2020, there's a vastly different consciousness. Risk has always asked our storytellers to err on the side of not being too cautious, to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible. That said, we also want our storytellers to be compassionate in their storytelling. But But even in stories where you hear an overall compassionate context to the sharing, you might still notice some moments that strike you as cringeworthy today. A lot of these storytellers, and myself as the host of some of the oldest episodes, would probably have handled those moments differently today. As always, the title of the series, Risk, is itself a trigger warning. This week, the 16th episode of Risk Ever to Be Heard. It premiered in May of 2010, and it's called The End.
ominous music because the end is coming here on Risk, the show where people tell true tales they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. That was David Bucks at the top. And no, it's not the end of our series. It's the episode where all the stories are about endings. It's also one of those special episodes where all the stories are live ones, told a couple weeks ago at 92Y Tribeca in New York. We begin with the end that Eliza Skinner lived through. Eliza is one half of the improv group I Eat Pandas and a star of the hit show Baby Wants Candy. Here she is with a tale we call Read Em and Weep. When I broke up with Bobby, it broke my heart. It just, it broke my heart to break up with this guy. And I was the one who broke up with him. Because we were, we were in like this super love, like super soulmate, secret language love. Like if you've never been in this kind of love, it's like, like unicorns fucking, like magical, perfect super love. But something didn't feel right, like in my gut. Like uh, Princess and the Pea, sort of, under all these layers of perfect, something didn't feel right. And I couldn't put my finger on it, but after a while, uh, I just couldn't stay with him. So I broke up with him, and he stuck around. He, I was 21, and I was 22, and he was 31, and he didn't know how to let go, uh, or anything about boundaries, really. Um, so he kept showing up at my apartment, at my place of work, calling me, and I didn't know enough about boundaries uh, to not think that was romantic. <laughs> so, uh, so we were in this weird, messy place, and I was talking to f- my, my friends and trying to get advice, and I remember talking to my friend Mike, who was actually another ex-boyfriend of mine, because I do keep him around, and he was like, well, what's the problem? And I was like, I don't know, I don't know, it was all so perfect, but I something is wrong. And he was like, do you think maybe he's cheating on you? And I was like, no, 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 because this guy is too obsessed with me. Bobby is like crazy about me, so that's not it. And he was like, I don't know then. I was like, I don't know either. So um, I didn't know what to do, and I I couldn't let go of him either. Um, But we would talk on the phone all the time, and one conversation I remember, we were talking so late into the night that I needed to get off the phone, and I didn't know how, so I pretended to fall asleep because I'm brave. <laughs> and the next day, he called me at work, um, and he was like, listen, we have to talk about what happened last night. And I was like, oh, about me falling asleep? And he was like, no, 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 about what you said. And I was like, what did I say? He was like, you said, you said I love you. And I was like, no, I didn't. I didn't say that. And he was like, yeah, when you were asleep, you said it. And I was like, no, because I wasn't asleep. <laughs> I just, I pretended to be asleep. I wasn't asleep. And he was like, no, you said it. And I was like, no, I didn't. He was like, you said this. And I was like, no, I didn't. And he said it so many times, I started to believe him. Because I was soft-brained. So, um, so things were going on like this. And I actually even started dating someone else. Um, think there was nothing physical going on between us, but we were just still so up in each other's business. I suddenly decided one day, I know what it is. We're supposed to be best friends. That's what it is. That's why we can't let go of each other, because we are soulmates. It's just not physical and, and like, you know, messy. It's a spiritual best friendedness. So let's hang out. Uh, so I told him that, and he was kind of okay with it. Um, he, he was just excited to get the opportunity to hang out with me some more. 
and not have to just show up at work um, to do so. So we decided to go to the zoo because that's what best friends do. You go to the zoo. And going to the zoo is an all-day trip. You can't just do that after work. So I showed up at his place early in the day, and he still wasn't ready to go yet. So he was like puttering around his apartment, finishing up breakfast, and looking for a sweater and stuff like that. So I sat down and put on the TV. I was watching the TV, and All My Children was on. uh, Because I put it on, because I watch All My Children. (laughs) And Susan Lucci slapped this man across the face. And I turned to Bobby and was like, have you ever slapped anybody across the face? And he was like, no, I, no, I don't know. And he's still looking for stuff. And I was like, I, don't, I feel like, is that something you're supposed to do? Because I've never slapped anyone across the face. And is that like a rite of passage that everybody's supposed to do that at some point? And, and it's some sort of coming into your own? Because I, I just, I can't imagine myself ever getting so angry at another person that I would violate their personal space. I, I can't imagine anything that you can't just talk out that you would have to get violent about. And he was like, found my baseball cap. And I was like, let's go to the zoo. (laughs) So we went to the zoo and we got high and looked at giraffes and monkeys are funny and it was great. And we had such a great day uh, that, we, that we were late coming back. So on the way back, we realized that we wouldn't have enough time to, uh, to, for both of us to go by his place to pick up my bag, because I left my backpack there in the morning, because who takes a bag to the zoo? So he handed me his key to his apartment, because we had that much trust, because we were so soul-mated. And when I went into his apartment, I opened the door, and I saw my bag, and then I saw his journal. And when we had broken up, he had started therapy. And as part of his therapy, he had started keeping this journal. And he would always say to me, I want you to read my journal. And I would always say, no, I don't want to do that. I knew that much about boundaries. Don't want to read the journal. Don't want to watch you poop. Don't want to read your journal. (laughs) And he was like, yeah, but you're going to read this and you're going to understand everything. And I was like, oh no, if I read this journal, I'm gonna fall in love with him again. I really don't wanna read this journal. (laughs) That's scary. So I hadn't read it, but we had such a great time at the zoo, and I saw it there, and I was like, fuck, maybe maybe we are supposed to be together. Maybe he was right. I mean, he wrote so many songs about me, you know? (laughs) And I don't know about you guys, but it's really hard to not listen to songs about yourself. because they're usually pretty awesome. (laughs) I was like, you wrote all these songs about me and we get each other and uh, I should just read this journal and it'll explain everything. So I opened it up and I started reading a list of all the people he had been fucking while we were dating. All the people he was fucking afterwards, all the lies he told me, all the lies he told me to cover those lies. And if brains had sound effects you could hear, Mine would have sounded like glass smashing. I was like, what the fuck do I do with this? So I grabbed his guitar and I cut all the strings. (laughs) And then I grabbed another guitar and I cut all the strings on that. And then another guitar and another guitar and this guy had so many fucking guitars. (laughs) So I was like, you did it Eliza, good job. And I left and I went to an audition, didn't do really well. And then I was like, you know, that's not enough. I still have the keys. So I went back to his apartment and I let myself in and I found the journal and I found the next blank page and I wrote on it, fuck you, you motherfucker, 
you know, fuckity fuck fuck, fuck <laughs> you. Um, and I sat there looking through it, looking over the place like, like where he had written about the time that he had convinced me that I said, I love you, that, that he had written, Eliza caught me lying about saying that she loved me, think I fixed it, think I lied to her uh, enough to make her believe it, reading the stuff like uh, about our friends and his students, things like um, might fuck Debbie, don't want to, but no I can. And I was like, you know what, he's gonna be coming home soon, I don't wanna miss this. So I left it there and I waited for him outside and when he came up, he walked up the block, he saw me and he was like, you're here. And I was like, I am. And I was like, where was that acting in the audition earlier? I was like, I am, I'm here. And he's like, oh, I, I hoped you would be here. And I was like, and I am. And he starts putting his key in the lock. And I was like, you know that stalker that you've had recently? Because he'd had this 17-year-old stalker recently, this girl who was interning at our theater. And I was like, you know that stalker you've had recently? I have a theory on her. And he was like, really, what's the theory? And I was like, uh, you're gonna think it's silly. And he's like, no, no, nah, what is it? And just as he opens the door and sees the journal, I say, I think you fucked her. You fucked her and she's 17 years old, you freak. You're fucking 32. And he, I saw red. And he looked at me like there was a wild animal in his apartment. And he was right, there was. And I just, for the next 20 minutes, went around his apartment just asking him about different women and different incidents, saying, you know, did you do this? And he would lie, and I would smash something. And I'd say, did you do this? And, I, and he would lie, and I would smash something. And be like, I know this stuff happened. That was not nonfiction. I read it. And he, uh, one of the things in there was that he had had two other girlfriends while we were dating. One of them he lived with. And he would just push her things into a closet when I came over. Because, and she was a touring ballerina, so she wasn't around that much. Push her things into a closet, and the things that were left over, I'd be like, how come you have all this Winnie the Pooh stuff around? He'd be like, oh, my grandma thinks I like Winnie the Pooh. And I would be like, grandmas. Because <laughs> I'm soft-brained. And, and the other girl was a girl that we both worked at this theater with. And I had asked him about this girl, all of these girls, over and over, and he had always been like, oh, you're paranoid, oh, come on, she's got a funny nose, whatever. Um, and so I was like, did you fuck Eris? And he was like, no. And I was like, did you fuck her? And he was like, no. And I was like, did you fuck her? And he was like, no. And then I smacked him across the face, and I was like, did you fuck her? And he was like, no. And I smacked him across the face, and he was like, did you fuck her? And he was like, no. And I smacked him across the face, and he said, did you fuck her? And he said, yes. And I was like, it worked! <laughs> and I walked out. And I don't know if smacking somebody is a rite of passage that everyone needs to go through. But it was one that I needed to go through. And it was definitely a clear demarcation of the end. <laughs> Yo ho, yo ho, take a risk Nothing venture, nothing gained Yo ho, yo ho, take a risk And listen to stories of pleasure and pain Yo ho, yo ho, take a risk Nothing venture, nothing gained Yo-ho, yo-ho, take a risk And listen to stories of pleasure and pain Oh, 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 oh Come everybody and let's take a risk 
our good friend Adam Griffin going all Tom Waitsy on us. Next up, a storyteller with a singular style marches to his own drummer. Martin Dockery tours around the world winning awards for telling stories. This one's called Summer's End. It was the end. Uh, there were signs of it uh, absolutely everywhere. Uh, bumper stickers, T-shirts. It was written on the side of little pens. You could buy them. The end, which is how both locals and tourists alike referred to Montauk, New York. A description that described not just this town at the very tip of Long Island, but described equally right now the summer, which was very quickly coming to an end, which in fact would be wrapped up in about like, ooh, two and a half hours, depending on traffic, depending on how long it would take me to drive from Montauk back to my parents' house, at which point I would get out of the car, walk up to my dad, and place these car keys squarely into his hand, and that moment right there would mark the true end of the summer, just as the true beginning of the summer had been marked the moment when he had put those same car keys squarely into my hand, a gesture that left him for the entire summer without any vehicle at all. A gesture which uh, amazed me, not just because of its generosity, but because it was a moment when I, as the child, had an inkling that maybe a parent can understand that this summer would be the summer that would be frozen in amber and placed somewhere in the back in a safe place in my memory. There should I ever need it to hold up to the light of my mind's eye and be bask in its warm amber glow. This was a summer for which I was nostalgic before the summer had even begun. It was the summer right after college. It was that razor's edge, you know, between childhood, you know, a lifetime of action without consequence, of reckless enthusiasm, of a track of education, and life after college, uh, adulthood, which seemed to me to be uh, an, uh, a lifetime where you wouldn't have to do anything, and by which, you know, it meant you would have to do everything. But I was excited to engage in this rite of passage, you know, collect a whole group of friends, eight of us in uh, my instance, including my girlfriend, and all of us head on out to Montauk to rent a house for the summer. Not so much a house, no, really to rent a beach floor in a house, not even a floor, to rent a beach two rooms, to have the eight of us living all on top of each other, all of us getting minimum wage jobs that we were excited to have because we all knew that we would only be doing them for a minimal amount of time, during which we would all be trying to figure out how to leave childhood behind and embrace uh, in my instance, becoming a man, which as the summer progressed, uh, seemed to have something to do for me with driving this car of my father's. And I keep referring to it as a car. It wasn't a car. This thing was a cream tan colored soft topped convertible CJ7 series classic Jeep. 
And when I would drive around in it, I would feel like a man, not because I was driving, but because I realized what I think so many men realize that we are most like men when we are surrounded by a whole lot of steel. If I could have walked around in a box of steel, I would have been like the manly, you know, if my dad, instead of giving me the keys to this Jeep, had given me the keys to a military style cargo airplane, I would have driven that around Montauk, you know? I wouldn't get the wings chopping down telephone poles, you know, mowing down the tops of people's hedges. I wouldn't have called like this about me becoming a man, you know, and driving around in a car. Usually, like, I'm not into cars that have words written on the sides of them, but for this Jeep, I made an exception because I liked the image that I imagined it put in people's minds when they would see me drive by and they would read the word on the side, Wrangler. As if to suggest, you know, this should Montauk be ever overrun by a herd of horses. Everybody riding around like, oh my God, where's so many ponies? Help somebody, we need a Wrangler. I would pull up in my Jeep and be like, hey, here is the original Iron Man. I tell you, there is nothing, okay? There is nobody who can make you feel something less than a man when you were driving in your Jeep with your girlfriend by your side, except maybe that girlfriend by your side. Uh, at least in my instance, because she, in not so many words, would always remind me that I was something less than a man, even when I was tooling around in my Jeep. It amazed her the number of ways that I could find to disappoint her, just as it amazed me the number of ways in which she could be disappointed. And in her defense, okay, I mean, all right, you know, I, though I emotionally, I'm always confused as to why she was upset, but there was some hard fat, you know, like I got fired that summer from six different jobs. I mean, do the math. The summer is like two months long, you know? And I get fired every two weeks. And I say fired as if to suggest it was like some explosive, dramatic, no, no. It was always very amicable when they'd let me go at these restaurants, you know? The manager would always come up to me and be like, Gosh, we feel like you don't really want to be here. And I would say to them, oh my God, I was just thinking the same thing. But what I wouldn't tell them that the reason I had just been thinking the same thing is because, you know, I just checked the schedule and I was no longer on it. Hence, I was thinking, yeah, I don't think I really want to be here, you know, either. But the summer wasn't over, right? We still had two and a half hours until I had to return the car keys. In fact, no, I should make it in a little bit. We had two and a half minutes until I would reach the end of Montauk. Montauk Highway would merge into Route 27, a proper highway that would bring us all the way back to the city. Two and a half minutes, which it occurred to me that, you know what? It's not too late to turn this entire summer around, to make one bold gesture that would leave an indelible stamp on the entire summer. If I just took that steering wheel, turned it sharp to the left, bounded over a couple of sand dunes, and spilled us out onto the beach. Something that I had yet to actually do. I've got a four-wheel drive, I've got a girlfriend, I've got endless sun, and I have never driven with her on the beach. Do it now, man, I say to myself, but I hesitate because I am remembering something that had happened just 
three weeks earlier. My friend Peter had come to visit. I was, uh, one of the eight people I was living with was his brother, Greg. I'd known both Peter and Greg since they were born. They were both two and three years younger than me, which meant that they were still in college, which meant that they were still children. And as such, even though we weren't at college, they were gonna behave as if we were. And all they wanted to do was get drunk. So we found ourselves out at this bar. And uh, because I'd never had a car in my life before, I'd never really experienced that horrible thing of like, you've got to stay sober. You've got to be the responsible one. And I found myself nursing one beer as they're getting more and more drunk, finding myself laughing louder than I normally do, as if to compensate for the fact that I feel such like a wet blanket. I feel so uninspired and they're having such a mirthful time. Finally, it's time to leave the bar. Peter's like, I'll catch right up with you guys. I go outside, I start up the Jeep, Greg gets into the back, all of a sudden the canvas passenger door flies open. Peter comes, spills a case of beer onto the floor of the Jeep, the glass rattling across the metal floor. He jumps into the passenger seat and he yells to me, go, 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 and in an instant, I am able to figure out, oh my God, he has stolen this case of beer from behind the bar and I have a decision to make here, you know? Do I tell him, no, this isn't proper, or do I go? And though you can blame, you know, you can blame a lot of things on alcohol, I would like to say you can equally blame a lot of things on not being able to drink any alcohol and feeling you have to make up for it by being just as crazy as all the people who are drunk. Show that, like, I got it, man, you know? So I put the pedal to the metal and I sped out of that driveway. Sped for about 10 feet because I'm responsible. There was a busy road, I had to stop, check if traffic was coming both ways. And then when I sped out onto the turn, I again came to a very quick slow down because I looked to my right and Peter was gone. I looked back, Greg was looking up. I leaned out my rolled down plastic window up and there was Peter standing fully upright on the top of the Jeep, looking down at me saying, don't worry man, I do this all the time in college. We surf on the roofs of buses. Now, I have never been to his town. I don't know what his buses are like, but I imagine they do not have canvas roofs. I imagine that if you are a passenger within that bus, you are not able to see the feet of the people surfing on top of it as you or you are inside. Uh, again, though, you know, I want to be perceived just as crazily and reckless as all these other kids in their youth. And so I don't tell them to get off, but I do slow down. I drive so slowly so he doesn't get hurt that like my speedometer is just like you know what dude I'm gonna nap during this one you know you don't need me uh, and while they're laughing I'm trying to laugh but inside my heart's like beating because I know that should someone come running out of that bar well first of all they won't need to run you know they'll be able to walk up to the Jeep not only will they have enough time to remember the license plate they will be able to put up a piece of white paper take out a pencil and make an etching of the license plate and by the time the police arrive you know and they will call the police and they will be like no you don't gotta hurry now these guys are gonna be here for a while finish your field yeah it's all right it's okay the police are gonna make fun of me you know because that license plate that I have it's a vanity license plate that my father got all right and what it says on it is what he perceived of, of us and the word on there is good guy <laughs>
eyes. And I can only imagine the police being like, you know, buddy, maybe you should stick to the good guys thing because you're not so good at the bad guys stuff, you know? And next time I looked up, Peter was gone, swept off the roof of the, uh, the car. I'd like to say I slammed on my brakes, but I was barely moving. I looked back, Greg was already out of the car, running to pick up his brother, who was on the ground, giggling, pulled him up, jumped back in the car, and finally I was able to drive away in a manner befitting an escape. And I was a little disappointed with myself for having gotten so nervous, gotten so like uptight while this was all going on. I was like, look, it all worked out. Why can't I just relax? Which is the reason to prove to them and myself that I still got it, that instead of driving back to our house, I suddenly took a detour, bounded off across a couple of sand dunes, and spilled us out onto the sandy beach, on which I'd never driven in my life. And, uh, and as soon as I did it, you know, they were very impressed. And I felt for a moment that I had touched upon a moment of brilliance, of pure genius. The whole uh, sand, the ocean laid out in front of us. And I tell you, it, the ocean itself was appreciative of this maneuver. It pulled back its water in a grand gesture as if pulling back a curtain. And I took that opportunity to drive the beach and the deep in a big big arch right up to the water's edge and when we hit that soft sand ooh this car just sunk right down into it so even though the pedal was still we weren't moving the wheels going like this and then as if the ocean in a grand burst of laughter it released that wave and shit crashed against our tires and we went from one moment being stuck on the beach to the next moment being stuck in the ocean you know which like, of all the things my father had warned me about, like, you know, don't crash the car, don't drink and drive. Like, if only it told me, like, don't let it float away. Maybe I wouldn't be here, you know? And the others, they're still laughing and I'm not laughing. And I'm trying to pretend that I got this situation under control. I say, look guys, I know that the four wheel drive to engage it, you have to get out and you have to do, uh, you have to turn some things on the actual like wheels themselves, but there's no light. We don't have a flashlight. We don't ha have anything. There's no moon. I can't actually see what I'm turning. I've never done this in my life and I keep getting back in the car and trying different combinations of wheel turns and the four wheel drive has its complete own stick shift that I can't even see what's written on it and uh, meanwhile the other two guys Peter and Greg they're collecting driftwood because it's their idea that they will build a road to help us out but of course every time they start laying down the road another wave comes in with a big burst of laughter it's like ha ha you know no more road again uh, they go they find a stop sign they tear that stop sign down which a pity, unfair, not just because it's government property, but because that was the one thing that had tried to stop us from getting in this situation. Well, not fair, but I tell you, I, I don't know if I literally prayed, but I, with every ounce of my body was praying nonetheless for some miracle to release me from the situation. And wouldn't you know, all of a sudden, some combination was right, the four-wheel drive engaged, and I was up and out and driving and back on the road, and Peter and Greg, they jumped in the car, and we drove back to the house, and I thought, oh my God, never again. And now I've got about one minute left before my girlfriend or I are at the border of Montauk. Uh, another two hours and 27 minutes before this summer is over, when I'm thinking like, God, 
never again or right now. You know, uh, God, you know, and I'm thinking like, I know how to drive a four-wheel drive again, you know? And why don't I make a gesture that will make my girlfriend realize that despite all my faults, I have a certain free spirit. I have a certain sense of adventure and enthusiasm, a certain youthfulness that I will not leave behind that she will be able to treasure despite all my other faults. So, I turn the wheel, sharp to the left. I bound over some sand dunes, spill out onto the beach. My girlfriend next to me be like, what are, you do- what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm living, baby, I'm living. I don't know if I actually said that, but that's what I felt like, you know? And I tell you, we're bounding across the sand for like mm, five seconds until all of a sudden, it just sinks. It just sinks into the soft sand. We're not even near the water. And suddenly, we're not moving again. It's exact replay of what happened before. I'm pressing the pedal, it's just, nothing's happening. And my girlfriend's next to me, like, you're, you're an idiot, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. She's like, didn't you just do this three weeks ago? And I'm like, I think so. And I get out, I'm like, don't worry about it, I just gotta turn the wheel things, and I'm out. Now I can see pure, I still can't get it to work. Different combinations, a police car drives up. I call it a police, it's really like these rent-a-cops, these people they hire for the summer to patrol the beaches, he pulls up, and he He's my age when he gets out because he's not a real cop, but he's dressed like one. He's got short blonde hair and these aviator sunglasses. But really, we're exactly alike, except for the key difference that he knows how to drive his four-wheel vehicle, and I apparently do not. He says something snarky like, you can't park here. And I'm like, yeah, I know, I'm stuck, you know? And I actually see my girlfriend roll her eyes at him and him laugh back to her, and I'm like, oh, they're flirting, you know? And just feeling like such an idiot and wishing that he would go, that everybody would go away. Well, again, it's some sort of miracle. Finally, the four-wheel drive engages. I'm able to burst up out of the sand. I'm able to drive back to the road. I have to wait for my girlfriend to walk across the sand, get back into the car. She's just shaking her head. She tells me, okay, as we're driving away, that the cop had said to her when I finally got myself free, and I don't know if my memory is correct that this is exactly what he said to her, but he said something like, uh, good luck finding a real boyfriend. And again, it doesn't matter if that is what he really said, it's like what he real said. And anyway, that's the way I remember it, which probably means that that's the way I was thinking about myself. And we drove away, my girlfriend thoroughly, I just like, perfectly demonstrated to her exactly who I am. And as we're driving along with the beach, uh, following us on the left-hand side, like all the way back to Brooklyn, I'm coming to realize, you know what? There is no end. Things just, they just keep going on. Life just keeps going on. And if change is gonna happen at all, it's gonna be painful, and you're gonna be making mistakes, and by some act of God, you will free yourself from that mistake, only to put yourself right back in the exact same spots, you know? But I tell you, that whole summer has now faded from memory. And the only parts of it that are frozen in amber somewhere in the back of my memory, should I ever care to take it out and look at it in the light of my mind's eye, are those moments when I made that mistake, thinking that, oof, there's an end, there's a future. No, it's all the same thing. Thanks a lot. That's my story. In today's society, it has become increasingly difficult to find a compatible mate. Therefore, you must always put forth your best self in terms of physical appearance and clothing. But I take a risk. 
I wear my favorite pants. The baseband is elastic and they flare at the knees. My favorite pants. They are covered in sequins and there's bells on the cuffs. They go ding, ding, ding. My favorite pants. That was Dan Rosen, whose pants go ding, ding, ding. Ellen Clegg sent us the music you're hearing now. If you'd like to send us music, write to Kevin at risk-show.com. Now to an ending the wonderful Cindy Freeman will share. Cindy co-hosts Stories at the Creek in New York, and in the world of burlesque dancing, she's also known as Cherry Pitts. We call this Tears for a Clown. So Steve was, was my first uh, in many ways. Mostly he was my first love. Uh, we met at, at college, at Emerson College. Uh, we were both founding members of a comedy troupe, the Swollen Monkey Comedy Showcase. <laughs> I love that title. Um, but Steve was the star of this group of kids. He was brilliant. I mean, absolute genius, you know, lightning in a bottle. Uh, you could be entertained reading the phone book. Like any cliche that you could use to describe genius belonged rightly to Steve. And we, the troupe, we were actually like the cult of Steve. Like we all wrote sketches wanting him to be our, our lead. We, we all wanted to play opposite him, hoping that somehow the genius would somehow manage to rub off on us. And I don't know how, but I managed to land him as my boyfriend. Um, I just thought he was beautiful. Uh, which is not to say he was handsome. He, he was not classically pretty. Um, not to say, well, I'd like to say he wasn't deformed, but he was deformed. He, uh, <laughs> he was blind in one eye. Uh, he had gotten brain surgery when he was 10 years old, and the eye had turned from brown to a very pale green. He had this contact lens that he could wear if he wanted to look normal. But Steve was not the kind of guy who'd want to look normal. And he would use this, this deformity for comic offense. He would just like get on stage and stare straight ahead with this wall-eyed stare, and people would just start cracking up. And I thought this was so heroic. Like here was somebody who had faced a life-threatening illness and was using his scars in ways that were just entertaining people and bettering himself. And when it came to, to sex, we were both virgins. And so we were both taking it very slow, but it was not going to be long. When we started dating, it was spring, and the flowers were in bloom, and then he went insane. Shortly after I graduated, he was a year younger than me, um, but I had graduated and we're sitting uh, on a sofa at the apartment he was staying at, and he just looked at me and said, I have a strange feeling about the summer. It's not good. But that bad feeling that he had slowly turned into broods and then it turned into paranoid ramblings and then he started hearing voices and throwing fits and throwing chairs and throwing dishes and his roommates threw him out. His roommates were really, really sweet people, pulled me aside one day and said, for my best interest, they felt they needed to tell me I needed to break up with him. But I, I really, I, I couldn't. Because uh, I explained to them, as I explained to my mom, who was very upset about all of this, and, and uh, my friends, that I loved him very much. And you don't leave people when they're in trouble. Whatever was going on with him was, was, was something else. It was not Steve. But I was 21 years old. I was too young to be taking care of somebody who was experiencing mental problems. And as the summer went on and his bad behavior went further and further amok, 
I, I lost friends, and I lost jobs, and I lost weight, and I lost sleep. I wrote a poem at the time. It went like this. Life is like a big glass bowl of jello that's fallen on the floor and shattered, and you don't know which is glass or which is jello, but you're really hungry, so you're going to eat it anyways. I was a joy to be around. <laughs> but despite this, this gloomy, that gloominess that just surrounded me and him and everything, I, I just couldn't break up with him. Luckily, he broke up with me. And uh, around October, he had an epiphany during one of his moods that I was the cause of all of his problems. And if he could just get rid of me, uh, within the week, he realized that this was a mistake and asked me back. But at this point, I was smart enough, even though it broke my heart, to say no. My mother was thrilled. <laughs> my friends, what few friends I had left, were thrilled. But I was, I was despondent. Uh, I was exhausted. I, I, had, I was just, you know, just sort of shell-shocked from watching someone I love like, descend into this, this madness. And so after sort of a, my mother and my friends confronted me, I realized I, I needed therapy myself. My therapist uh, explained to me that her thought was, I, I was just too young to be taking care of someone else. I was supposed to be learning how to take care of myself, and, and I was young, and, I, and, you, and, you know, and you're pretty, and you're, you're, you're smart, and you're funny, and you should be having fun. I had been studying acting, and I wasn't pursuing anything. She's like, you need to go out and get your headshots out. And so on her advice, I put a little cover mark under the dark circles under my eyes and marched myself into a casting office. And in what must have been the oddest twist of fate and the kindest act of God to ever befall me, the woman at the counter said, you know, we're looking for reoccurring extras for Spencer for hire on the police force, and you'd be perfect. <laughs> I was not perfect. I was, I was 21 and I looked 16. But despite this, I was fitted for a police uniform and showed up on the set where this miscasting choice was not lost on the crew or, or, or the cast. They just, I guess what was needed on the set at the time was a mascot and I was dressed to fit the bill. And Robert Urich used to, his favorite gag was to steal my hat and start playing a game of keep away. And the Teamsters, for some reason, would love to sneak up on me and tickle because it would make me scream. It was like having an entire like, like community of big brothers. And it was so much love and easy sunshine. I mean, here was a place where my only job was to be cute and funny. And I discovered I could do that. <laughs> I didn't tell anyone on the set about Steve or the summer or my bad poetry, um, mostly because my therapist had said to me, it is, it is time to move on. If you don't bring it up, people are not going to ask, and you need to create a life where he is no longer the center. And so by my omission, I created this lovely little haven, this one place in my life where the trauma of it did not exist. I started dating the most handsome production assistant. His name was Jim. He was tall and athletic with sandy brown hair. He was like something out of a Gap ad. <laughs> he was like a perfect trophy boyfriend to my fabulous new life. I mean, he wasn't funny as Steve, but he had something Steve did not have, which was mental stability. And this was fabulous. Um, I had my like, thoughts about what would happen if I would run into Steve at this point because I was sort of living this double life, you know, the place where he existed and the places where he didn't. And I, in a small town like Boston, this kind of stuff is precarious at best. And I was afraid my lives would, would 
you know, come meet up somewhere. And I, I imagine if I saw him, at this point I was kind of annoyed with him because I was actually pretty angry. He had, he had started dating a woman he had met at the mental institution. And he was bragging to all of our friends at the comedy troupe that uh, he had finally lost his virginity to somebody who wasn't frigid and uh, was starting rumors about perhaps I was a lesbian. And uh, crazy is crazy, but mean is mean. And this was, this was just mean. And I imagined if I was to see him, I would just, I would just ignore him. I would just, he would try to say hello, but I would have known everything he's been saying behind my back, and I would just completely ignore him. And then it, it finally did happen. It happened at the Lennox Piano Bar um, which was this bar where there is a piano player and people sang show tunes. And uh, I was a regular, had been since college, and I had brought my new boyfriend, Jim, to show him there was more to me than being an extra. I had talent. I, I, my, my signature piece was Adelaide's Lament from Guys and Dolls. <laughs> and so I brought him in and the hostess sees me and she knows me and gives me a big hug and says, he's gorgeous. And he's, he's like, it's busy, but you stand here and I'm going to find you a table. So we're standing there and getting accustomed to the lighting in the place. The place looks like a Fabergé egg. It's like over the top and ridiculous. <laughs> and um, it's, it's the piano player playing something cheerful and old, possibly sunny side in the street. And I didn't see Steve walk in. I, I, I felt it. It was, like, it was like, a, like a chill right before a rain. And I turned, and there he was with his new girlfriend from the mental institution. She was wearing a, what was possibly her prom dress. And it was blue and chiffon with rhinestone you know, spaghetti straps. And it was snowing outside. <laughs> But even odder than this was her eyeshadow, which was like two peacocks stuck on her face. But was even more disturbing than this was Steve himself. I hadn't seen him in three months. And Steve that I dated had been this skinny guy. And this guy, he, was, he, was, he had gained at least 20 or 30 pounds. And my first thought is, my God, what did they give him? And he, he, he no longer fit into, he was wearing his favorite blue suit, but the, the cuffs were coming up and it clearly couldn't be buttoned. He looked like, like in Willy Wonka on the Chocolate Factory, the girl who blew up into a blueberry. And it was like, it was, he, he stared at me with these Rasputin-like glare and I didn't say anything to Jim. Jim knew I had an ex-boyfriend from college. It had been a messy breakup, but I was not about to say, you know. <laughs> so I waited for the hostess who saw us all, and she had known me for a while, knew Steve was the ex, knew enough to put me at a far end on a table, and Steve and the girl on some far end over there. And we were sat with this lovely older couple who were like, you're, you're, you, you do what? You work for Spencer for hire? What is Robert Urich really like? And Jim was going off and entertaining them with, with tales of the crazy guest stars and the antics on the set and then I got up and I sang and and I, I nailed my Adelaide's lament and got like a big round of applause I came back and Jim is beaming and the older people are like oh you're so talented and I sit down it's all going so well and then it's the woman at the table who's got to be about 60 who says what is with that crazy couple in the corner and I don't want to turn around but I do and and they're wildly, wildly, wildly making out. And if they've put them on this sort of like 
love seed and and they room enough to spread out and they're spread and her crinolines are flying and she's on top of him and like sucking on his tongue like it's a damn popsicle or something and I turn around thinking out of sight out of mind but it's the people at my table that are now staring and they they won't stop making comments like you know I thought they were crazy from the moment they got in here I think they're on drugs you know what's with all the eye makeup is she Tammy Faye Baker you know and and by now everybody in the restaurant is staring especially like the staff and the piano player who know he's my ex and now they're staring at me like maybe I'm going to contribute to this sideshow and I'm I'm not quite sure what to do and the, the comments are getting snarkier and snarkier and, and they're all staring at Steve but nobody can see Steve but me all they see is some crazy boy acting crazy and I know that inside there is a brilliant brilliant boy and his talent will probably never be actualized that he is a kind and sweet boy and I want to stand up and tell the people at my table just stop it and so the staff that is staring at him and smiling and laughing like just buy some compassion the poor boy has been he had brain surgery when he was 10 years old he was in a mental institution and so was she then they have an excuse I want to go over to him and just just calm him down the way I'm really good at the way I was always able to but to do any of this would be to leave my new boyfriend and this new perfect life that my therapist has assured me is my reward for the good choices I am now making. It would be abandoning my mom and, and betraying my friends that have been willing to stick by me, and so I don't. I just sit there. It's like a now or never moment. I can choose Steve or myself, and I choose myself. And I hold on to my little wine glass as, as management asks them to leave. And I hold on for dear life like it's a rosary or, or some sort of chalice as, as they are screaming, like, they can do whatever they want. And security is called, and they are dragged, yelling out of the room. I sit there clinging on to this wine glass and all of the joy and all of the love and all of the music music and all of the laughter. Thank you. Trevor Jude Smith there. The websites of all our musicians and storytellers are listed at risk-show.com. Our next story comes from a quickly rising star on the scene. Ryan Paulson's solo show, Pentecostal Wisconsin, got a lot of attention around these parts. Here he is with Rapture Panic. My, uh, my mother was always trying to prepare me for the end of the world. My mother and father raised us in this uh, fundamentalist Pentecostal church and, uh, you know, a, a really extreme religious right kind of a place. And, and my parents weren't necessarily obsessed with, like, doomsday prophecy, but like everyone in this church, one of the central beliefs that they had was that the world was ending unexpectedly, probably soon, and it would start with Jesus coming back to earth in what is called in a... Uh, fundamentalist circles, the rapture. Now, um, the rapture is, uh, it's supposed to happen like this. Like, one day, all of a sudden, Jesus will come back and it'll appear like in the sky over earth, I guess to everyone all over the globe at once. 
and, uh, and, and there'll be like the sound of a trumpet, right? And then all the Christians, wherever they are, will get like sucked up into heaven, like a big heaven-sized vacuum cleaner. They'll just go up to heaven. And then once all the Christians are in heaven with Jesus, then the Antichrist comes to power on earth, right? And he unleashes all of this like famine and plagues and wars and he has like a seven-headed apocalyptic dragon, you know, who tries to eat people. It's intense, right? <laughs> and one thing that was, uh, that was made really clear was, you know, you don't want to be around for the stuff that comes after the rapture. So you want to be prepared. You want to make sure that your life is right with God so you don't get eaten by a seven-headed apocalyptic dragon. Right? <laughs> and my, uh, my family went to this movie about the rapture when I was, I think I was only two at the time, but we went to see this movie. It's called A Thief in the Night. And I think my parents didn't really think, they just took me along, probably because they couldn't find a babysitter. I don't think they really realized that I would know what was happening or that I would get that this was really scary. But I remember seeing this movie and, and all these images are still stuck in my head of like some guy driving away while the Antichrist like chased after him and he wanted to like capture him and chop his head off in a guillotine. You know, this is really scary. And it really, it scared me as a kid. And that's the, the scariest memory I have as a child was seeing this movie about the rapture. And one of the things that, that's really frightening too about the rapture is that it could happen at any time, right? So someone could, could be somewhere and all of a sudden they'll just poof, disappear. You know, I mean, not, not a place like this where clearly you're all heathens, but like, you know, <laughs> at another place. I'm sure no one here will be gone in the rapture. But it's scary to think that not all of a sudden people could just disappear and leave off behind like a puddle of clothing, you know? And clearly, this would cause worldwide chaos. Because think about it, like, say you're on a plane and the rapture happens. If the pilot is a Christian, well, you better hope that the co-pilot is an atheist. <laughs> right? Or you're in trouble, you know? There's no one to fly the plane. And I thought about this as a kid, like, this would, what was going to happen? Or here's another example, like, let's say you're having open heart surgery. If you have open heart surgery and the rapture happens, well, you better hope that the person operating on you is like, you know, a Muslim or gay. <laughs> you know, like someone who's clearly never going to heaven. <laughs> anyway, from my church's perspective, anyway. <laughs> but it was scary to think that people could just kind of like disappear at any time. And, and it leads to something that that I've given a name to. I, I don't know if anyone else, I don't think anyone else has coined this phrase, but there's con this condition that I call rapture panic, which, which happens when, um, say you come home one day and you're surprised to find the house empty. You know, no one's there. And it's not that big of a deal, right? But for a second, you're like, oh my God, maybe the rapture came and everyone was taken and Jesus forgot me. And this is really, this is surprisingly common. If you ever run into someone who like grew up fundamentalist and believes in a rapture, it's a really common thing. You start to, you start to like see everything through this prism of the rapture coming soon, you know? And it takes a few years, you know, it took me anyway, a few years after I left the church to realize that this is not a healthy way to view the world. Now, people take this stuff, the, the rapture stuff, really, really seriously though. Um, and there are supposed to be all these signs that it's coming soon. And a lot of them are really vague. Like my favorite one that people always mentioned was, we'll know the rapture is close and the end of the world when there are wars and rumors of wars. 
<laughs> I mean, that's sufficiently vague, right? Because, like, when, when in human history have there not been wars, and then, you know, rumors that maybe there would be other wars soon? <laughs> and, and here's another one that's, this is even more vague. It was any sort of technology is sort of seen as fundamentalist, like, a little bit uh, cautiously. Because they feel like with every big uh, technological advancement, that could be the thing that the Antichrist uses to rule the world. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Like even something kind of innocent like barcodes, when they first came out, were a little bit, fundamentals were a little bit suspicious because I thought, well, that could be the thing. You know, when the Antichrist comes, maybe he'll just put barcodes on people's foreheads instead of 666, you know, and then he could track their every move. Also, that way, if the Antichrist were to scan you, he would know if you're on special. <laughs> but really, like any sort of technology, and, and this isn't just uh, like when barcodes came out. This, this is something that just happened recently. In February, the, the, this is great, the Virginia State Legislature passed this law that said that no one can implant uh, microchips in someone's skin in the state of Virginia. And I don't think anyone wanted to implant microchips in anyone's skin in the state of Virginia. But when they asked, like legislators, to why you pass this law, they said, well, we're afraid that someday when the Antichrist comes, he will want to implant uh, microchips in people's skin, but we're going to pass a law so that he can't do that. <laughs> and what I think is really great about this is that it's like the Antichrist, who according to my church's teachings, will be like, you know, he wants to take over the world and he has an army of demons and his pet dragon and he'll use violence in whatever means necessary. But he still respects Virginia state law. <laughs> uh, this, this, this actually happened to me just today, which I know sounds untrue, but I was walking through Grand Central and there was someone holding up this big sign that said the end of the world will be, I think it was like May 11th, 2011, right? And, and I took this brochure. Uh, and, and I have it right here. If you're listening on the podcast, I have this holding up this little brochure. It says, the end of the world is almost here. Holy God will bring judgment day on May 21st, 2011, right? And it says right here, you know, that the rapture is probably gonna happen soon because there are wars and rumors of wars, which, <laughs> and also there's a lot of technology coming out lately, so probably. But I got this, you know, and when I saw it, I like, I wanted to say to the lady, like, you don't have to tell me the end of the world is soon. I mean, have you seen the iPad? That kind of technology is probably something that the Antichrist will use to rule the world. Anyway, I was, so I was, I was really concerned um, uh, growing up about the end of the world coming, you know, and I wanted to be prepared. And um, the end of the world did come, but it didn't come with the Antichrist knocking on my door and asking to put a microchip under my skin. The, uh, the end of the world came when my mother died uh, um, and one morning in uh, April of 1997. And my, uh, my mom, she'd been sick for a while, actually. <clears throat> she'd had a kidney failure for about 10 years, and, and there had been you know, complications, infections. She'd, there was an attempted transplant, and her body rejected it. And so it wasn't, it wasn't unusual for her to be sick. It wasn't even unusual for her to be in the hospital. But she always got better. You know, she went to the hospital, but she always came out again. Which is why when the end was finally there, it, it seemed surprising. Um, the, the most recent time, uh, she, was, she was in intensive care in the hospital, which even that wasn't that unusual. And she had been getting better, we thought, the last couple days, so my family was really optimistic. And then one night, um, I got a call very late saying that I should come to the hospital because it was, 
it was probably going to be the end. And uh, I, I went to the hospital and, and, and into her room. It was, it was a pretty big room, and, and she was uh, in her bed in, in, in a diagonal uh, in the corner. And you know, there were a lot of tubes and IVs and things. That didn't, that didn't make me uncomfortable. I, I'd seen that before. Um, she appeared to be unconscious. I mean, uh, she was in a lot of pain, so they had her on a lot of drugs. It's hard to know what she really knew about what was going on. But, um, but I, I always felt really comfortable in hospitals for some reason. I guess because I spent so much time visiting my mom growing up. But this time was different, I guess, because I knew it was like the last time I was going to visit my mom. And there were a lot, a lot of people there, uh, like uh, family friends and um, people from our church, a pastor from our church, my dad, my brothers. And the room that was big just got like smaller and smaller throughout the night as more people trickled in sometimes feeling a little claustrophobic. Now the thing about, about uh, waiting for someone to die is that there's a lot of waiting. You know? Like you, you go to the hospital and you say goodbye and then you, and then you like wait, you know, and then you're like, well, I, maybe I could say, maybe I should try something else. Like maybe I, should, maybe I could rephrase that, you know, I've reworked this speech, now I can say goodbye again and then you wait some more and then you say goodbye and then you think of one other thing and you know, we mo- each of us in the room must have said goodbye like five times. And by the time she was actually like the last minute of her life, no one had anything to say. The goodbyes had already been said, you know. I feel like in the movies, it's like, it's like someone knows that the person has 30 seconds to live, you know, and they're like, great, just let me give one good speech and then, you know, the person will be gone and we'll, you know, it'll be like a great ending, you know. But in real life, it just, I don't know, it didn't, it's hard to have exquisite timing in real life. The other thing is that, um, I don't know, you see someone on screen like say goodbye to someone before they die and like they seem to have an articulate expression of their feelings or if they don't, they kind of stumble and somehow it seems profound, you know, like, dad, I always loved you, you know, and it's like, oh, that's really touching, like the way he said that, you know. But in real life, I just, all I had were apologies, you know. All I could think to do was like, before my mom died, let me just apologize for everything I've done that could possibly have ever upset her, you know. So I said, Mom, I am, I'm sorry I wasn't a better son. I'm sorry I didn't say I love you as much as I should have. I'm sorry that I didn't visit you in the hospital more. But I want you to know that you were a really great mom and I, and I feel lucky to have had you as my mother. And then at some point, the 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 focus of the room switched from my mother to this little machine next to her, measuring her, her vital signs, or all these, all these different numbers in red, kind of almost like an alarm clock. And of course, the numbers were all, were all going down. Now, I've always thought numbers were a really cold way to look at something. Like, I've never been a numbers guy. You know, numbers don't speak to me. I don't know. Because what does it matter that 115 is less than 120 except if that's your mother's pulse and it means she's five beats closer to her death. And the numbers went down, you know, like kind of like that um, slow but steady way, like it would be 100 and then 96 and then 97 and then 85 and then 86 and then 75, slowly but surely down to zero. And as the numbers marched down, I, I was a little bit relieved because 
Though I didn't want my mother to die, I knew, you know, she was in a lot of pain, and, and if the end was going to come, which it inevitably was, there was no real hope that she would live at this point, I, I wanted it to come quickly. And uh, then when, when she finally did exhale for the last time, someone in the room, uh, one of the pastors of my church said, he said, hallelujah. And I knew what he meant having grown up in this church he meant like well you know now she's with Jesus now she's at peace isn't that isn't that wonderful I, I knew what he meant and I wanted to punch him <laughs> you know I mean Jesus didn't need her I needed her so the the death of my mom was of course the end of my mom but it was also the, the end of my family in, in a way uh my family would no longer have this central figure to rally around, you know? We were like a, a team without a coach, you know? When my mom had been alive, it's like we, we could all set aside our differences because we wanted to make her happy, and we sort of lost the one thing that we all loved. You know, the one thing we had in common was we all loved my mom. And uh, with, without her, the differences seemed larger and harder to put aside. It was also, in a way, the end of the part of me that I shared only with my mom. Um, not because I had some secret that only she knew, but, I mean, the things we did together, the conversations we had, I can't duplicate those, of course. And I'll never have another mother. And I was, I was thinking about this the other day, and maybe this is a cliche way to say it, but it really hit me the other day, like, there'll never be anyone who loves me as much as my mother did. It's kind of scary, it's like all downhill from here, you know? I've had the most love I could probably have. So my mom was wrong. The, uh, the end of the world didn't start with Jesus coming back to earth. It started with her leaving it. But you know, I always feel like that's, that's the thing about endings. They very rarely happen the way you plan. Since I am, I am no longer a Christian, I think it would make for a cleaner story arc if I could say that, um, and I think we're all concerned about clear story arcs here. <laughs> I just feel like when you get into the triangle below canal, you've got to, people care about a clean story arc. <laughs> um, yeah, I, just, I feel like, you know, it would be nice and just convenient if I could say the end of my mom was the end of my faith, you know? But it's just not true. And maybe it was the beginning of the end. Maybe it was the end of the beginning. Maybe it was the middle. I don't know. I mean, that's another thing about endings. They're so hard to pin down sometimes, you know? But regardless, I no longer think that the end of the world is coming any minute. But, uh, just in case it does, I am pondering a move to Virginia. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's the end of the end episode. Risk is created and hosted by me, Kevin Allison. Our producer is Michelle Walson. Our sound engineer is Nick Montalbano. Our story editors are Andy Croner and Jeff Mersel. Our episode editor is Mike Cades. 
Our associate producers are Madison Perry, Nina Moses, and Catherine Green. And don't forget what the Chileans say about risk. Who makes a hobby of pulling lice from others' heads and squashing it between their teeth? Thank you.